come on, come on to the festival of thrift. Come on, come all to our Festival of Thrift podcast series of talks recorded live in the Enlightened Tent at the Festival in Kirkleatham, Redcar in September 2021. We hope you'll enjoy this edited recording of our discussion, which was entitled Rewilding. What's it all about and does it really matter? The talk was chaired by me, Simon Preston, and our first guest, well, here's what he had to say. So, my name is Jean-Luc Salanta. I work for the Marine Conservation Society for 18 years. I'm a marine biologist uh, and trained in the tropics and then came to the UK 20 years ago. And mostly I work on marine protected areas, which are places you'd think would be wild, but it's really hard to get them to be quite wild, would you believe, because of the historical use of the ocean, which is all about exploitation that the oceans are really wonderful opportunities for rewilding. I think the best opportunity. You know about carbon in trees probably more than anything else. Well, there's similar amounts of carbon in muds, would you believe, in the seafloor. Also in rich sediments, so where muds have got lots of organisms in them, like bivalves, like clams and burrowing animals. And we have a huge amount of that, and also much closer to shore. Um, we also have seagrass beds, salt marsh, and um, oyster Habitats, And these have been largely decimated because of the industrialisation of our coasts. Uh, it's no one's fault. It's just what we've done as a species that we didn't know the consequences of. So it's not a blame game. It's quite positive. Now we're learning about these things. And now we're restoring them. Um, we are actively starting to restore them. So blue carbon is about those sorts of habitats and how they lock down carbon and also sequester it, which is this process of actively, continuously locking down carbon through biological processes. And that's happening a lot in the sea for our benefit. So is this about ensuring that the carbon stays where it is in the mud, or is it about putting more carbon into the sea so we, we capture some of the carbon that we have released into our atmosphere? Yeah, there's passive and active rewilding projects in the sea. I call passive rewilding projects those where you stop the damage and then active restoration is about actively humans intervening with management and capital projects. So the biggest thing we can do to protect the oceans and store carbon is to stop trawling. Because trawling kicks up the seabed. We catch our fish by it, but the average trawler is trawling for about 8 hours a day or 12 hours a day, continuously for a week, on huge parts of our continental shelf, which is bigger than the surface area of the country. If we to stop that and at least 40% of the seas, which is what marine protected areas are, we'd have massive opportunities for carbon restoration. And then active restoration is more really exciting projects inshore where we can actually grow oyster reefs, we can grow kelp farms, we can grow seaweed farms, and we can grow seagrass beds, actually, which used to be used historically in ancient times for mattresses and pillows in crofting communities in Scotland. So we've known about these things, we've used these things, but we didn't know the value of them to us. And we can actually intervene in some of these coastal areas to really improve our blue carbon stocks. The first thing you said was that the most important thing we can do is stop trawling. How are we going to stop trawling? Well, we have to make the governments act to do it. And there is an opportunity in the next two years. One of the benefits of Brexit, I'm a Remainer, but actually is in my area, um, which is that we can actually control international fleets to the middle of the North Sea, relevant to where we are now. And we can stop those boats coming in and trawling on our marine protected areas. So the government is involved in a process at the moment of hopefully closing large amounts of marine protected areas to that sort of trawling activity, maybe up to 30% of our seas. I don't think it will happen because I'm a cynic, 
Well, you could all write to your MP and ask for it to happen because there's an emergency going on. A fascinating introduction to the subject of blue carbon there from Jean-Luc. And now let's hear from our second speaker. Yeah, hi, I'm Kelly Cruz. I'm the Carbon Reduction and Sustainability Manager at South Tyneside Council. The local authority declared a climate change emergency in July 2019 on the back of understanding that climate change is, is, is fundamentally a major issue that we're all facing. And collectively, a lot of councils now are realising that and looking at how we can use you know, our seabeds in a way to restore and enhance biodiversity, carbon sequestration and storage. We've spent many years taken from the planet um, and we've constantly been taken and it's about time now that we started giving back to the planet and restoring back the, the damage that we've created. What practical, real things are you hoping to do off the coast here and what are the benefits to us of that yeah. happening? I think the first and foremost is... is um, engagement and awareness and making everybody understand the benefits that the seas bring to us. Are we talking about rewilding the ocean as in letting it get back by itself <coughs> to its natural state or are we talking about divers going out and planting kelp? I think it's a bit of both. We've got to have some human intervention unfortunately. It would be nice that we didn't have to do that but like you say with all the trawling and everything that's going on it's damaging seabeds um, and we need to you know kind of reduce that so nature comes back itself and restores itself but we also need to do more to enhance that further by going out and planting ourselves as well it's amazing isn't it to think that we can actually go out and physically plant stuff in the ocean so this approach from south tyneside council does it reach further into the way the council's thinking about how it does other things in terms of keeping things in step with nature yeah, we are looking at it in a positive way. I've got a massive tree planting programme going on and the vision of the council is to really bring a, a brighter, vibrant future and a, a greener economy so everything that we're doing is in a sustainable way. Keeping it local, next to speak is Sharon Lashley, introducing her work at both Climate Action North and Rewilding Britain Northeast Network. We do pollinator parks, which is rewilding the North's business park. There's not really much there for pollinators and for uh, declining insects. So I'm the coordinator for Rewilding Britain for the, the network in the northeast. Rewilding is a form of conservation. But rewilding came from a need to go one step beyond traditional conservation measures. It's enabling uh, people to step back a little bit on landscape and let the landscape lead and let nature lead. But then you have to have some intervention, for example... Um, introducing trees in the highlands they've not got tree species there anyway so what they're doing is reintroducing some tree species and then you know putting fences up so that they don't get eaten by the deer and the many many animals and then just letting natural regeneration take over as well so there's a lot to be said about naturally regenerating areas alongside traditional practices where you're introducing things so it just came from the real need to push that one step further and especially in the climate emergency I think it's going to be a key climate solution I think for the future. So you're saying conservation is about preserving what's there but rewilding is more about enabling us to take it back to where it was before is that right? I think it's a combination of it I shouldn't say that you know all conservation done is preserved species when you look at um, traditional conservation practices there's only so far they can go with the money that they've got, the resources that the government give them. But I think what rewilding does is encourages people to think about the free stuff that they can do as well on the back of the project. So by letting some areas just get back to nature 
and see what comes up. That's okay. what we do with our small project. Just leave it and let's see what we get. Well, that do. was my next question, really, was what do you expect the benefits to I be? I think sometimes it depends on the whether it's a terrestrial project, like a land-based project, whether it's a marine rewilding project. It's about understanding what you have, what you can put in place, whether that will work, and then having the bravery to stand back. So if you Google the NEP estate, K-N-E-P-P, that has done it. it, took it out of traditional farming, um, took about 10 or 15 years to get to where they are now, but now they're very profitable and the land is attracting so many different species that have all come back, things like turtle doves and white storks and things like that. How does rewilding link with climate change? Yeah, it's absolutely inextricably linked. I think, you know, rewilding, in my opinion, and I've been doing climate change for a lot of years, this is the first time I've actually felt really positive about the future because there's so many different benefits of carbon sequestration by not pulling up peaks, of, you know, rewilding the seas, of even tree planting. I'm not saying that mass tree planting will be the only answer. Of course it won't. It will be a combination of all of these different things, of just either leaving something locked in and not disturbing it, or grassland, very undervalued at the moment, but it's a huge carbon sequestration, you know, an issue. I love grassland. Grassland's really good. Good to hear Sharon feeling so positive, and good of her to bring up Pete, because that leads us neatly to our final speaker, Frankie Turk of Repeat. Uh, you're going to have to bear with me, because my first public speech, so... Yay. <laughs> but yeah, so my name's Frankie, and I'm from a youth collective called Repeat, you might be like me a couple of years ago and not know anything about peatland. So basically a peatland is anywhere that you get a build-up of peat and this is mostly in like bogs and fens. How the peat forms is you get a kind of depression in the land and then water starts stagnating and then plants fall in and they don't fully decompose uh, because the water loses oxygen and uh, ch the pH changes. This happens over thousands of years, so imagine like one millimetre per year. If you dig one metre down, you're getting like thousand year package of formation. And repeat, I'm going to give a little backstory. So a few of us went on this field trip to a peatland. We were speaking to this scientist who'd studied peatlands for a long time. He was like, peatlands are the largest terrestrial carbon store, storing twice as much as all the forests. They only take up 3% of the land. I'm like, what? Like, how have we not heard about this? On the positive side, when you get healthy peatlands, they have, like, all these benefits. So they store lots of carbon. They have, like, really niche plant flood protection, all this positive stuff. But then uh, what happens is quite often peatlands are drained. And what that means is basically all of these, like, positive things get reversed. So uh, instead of taking up carbon, they actually release, like, loads of carbon. So now... Believe it or not, the emissions from drained peatlands uh, globally account for like almost three times the aviation industry. And then also you get flooding when you drain off the water, you compress the land, then the water doesn't get soaked up, so you get this big runoff. Also, 70% of UK drinking water comes from peatlands. So without peatlands, you don't have nice water. Peatlands are like this intersection between like the earth and the water. They're not alive, they're not dead, kind of like these in-between spaces. And so we kind of like, we felt like, wow, these are really like inspiring ecosystems. We want to do something about it. That's the story. <laughs>
Uh, I thought that was amazing. And I'm, as you were, astonished by many of the facts and things you've told. What concerns you most about what's happening to our peatlands? So traditionally, peatlands have been drained in lots of different places. And again, this comes back to, like, it's not anyone's fault. It's just that happened because they were used for different things, like fuel or grasslands to have cattle on or whatever it is. But as long as the ground is drained, then it's continually emitting CO2. So the first thing is basically to block the drains and let the water collect again. But yeah, what's quite tricky is that because they grow so slowly and because they're like this kind of ancient ecosystem, it takes a while for them to get back to where they were. But like, as soon as you re-wet them, you stop the emissions. There will be some methane emissions, but in the long run, it's like a no-brainer. And so yeah, basically rewilding is actually in some peatlands really simple it's just well block up the drains fill in any kind of like gap put some sphagnum mosses you see it quite quickly like just start regenerating is is there things we should be doing in order to make a stand against damaging our peat stocks also one of the really tricky things is the tension between like land ownership like farming tradition the way that people perceive the land even like just the aesthetics of what it looks like that's like a real big shift that we need to go through be like oh okay now this land which used to be like dry and have cows on it is now going to be wet and it's going to have mosses and like birds or whatever there's also a thing called paludiculture which is um, agriculture on wet peatlands so that is also another whole upcoming thing which is in the kind of like pilot stage so that's a nice solution for farmers that were working on drain peatlands to now And what kind of things would they grow on these wet peelings? You can grow like a few edible plants, but like I think one of the most potential things that you can grow is materials for making stuff. So for example, you have cattails, which are like these plants that the inside has little holes because it's a water plant. And then that can be used as insulation material and stuff. Okay, so yeah. not necessarily food, but uh, there yeah, are There resources. are food crops, okay. but I think they're quite niche, but it's an upcoming whole field in development, yeah. Amazing to discover the rewilding potential of peatlands, but what opportunities does that give us here where the Festival of Thrift is based in the northeast of England? Sharon Lashley. One of the things to remember is that we have an awful lot of land already that is potentially peat or fenland that is used for other things like grouse shooting, for example. There's a lot of work going on with Rewild in Britain about how you engage with them to run their businesses differently as an ecotourism site, for example. So you can allow all those species to come back and allow the land to recover. The one thing I would say about peat as well is that don't buy peat compost, just buy peat free. It does exactly the same, but it's just something to think about that's a very simple change, isn't it? So we keep talking about reintroducing species. We were talking about the moss there. I've been reading about beavers being reintroduced to Scotland and, and now to England. There's talk of lynxes and all sorts. You know, why is it important that we have these species? They don't give us anything. Why do we need them? They did give us things many, many years ago. Obviously, we had a balance before we started coming in and making all these changes. So there's something called a trophic cascade, if you want to look that up. But you have apex predators at the top, and then you work your way down. So everything forms part of the ecosystem. So it's a bit like a three-legged stool or whatever you want to call it. If you take one of those legs away, something else has to suffer. So the reason we have species reintroduction is to try and bring some of those benefits back. We'll take the beaver, for example, one of the brilliant ecosystem engineers. 
Uh, we wouldn't have half as much flooding if we just brought beavers back into the right places because they automatically organise the landscape in a way that we couldn't do, that would cost us a lot of money, cost the environment agency thousands to do what they do, but beavers do it for free. It's probably one of the easiest ones to reintroduce because they're not as problematic, for example, as the lynx. So you'll find there's more simpler things going on, like the water voles being reintroduced in red squirrels. I used to see them quite a lot when I was in my 20s. Now I don't see hardly any. But then the more complex things are lynx, bears and wolves, be great to have bears and wolves <laughs> as well but we'll never get that far I don't think from the successful return of beavers to the land back to the sea and is the reintroduction of oyster beds an important development Jean-Luc Soland yeah they're really important because they filter seawater and they lock down carbon in their shells every day a, an oyster can filter something like 200 litres of seawater just on its own if you've got hundreds of millions of these organisms they clean the water for you so it's not just about carbon in those animals, they also are what we call ecosystem engineers. Much like the beavers, they provide a service which we are trying to invent engineering solutions to deal with. And the only thing that's taken them out is, as I've said many times, seabed trawling. So we've got to stop industrial seabed trawling everywhere. And we are now in the Essex estuaries and in the Firth of Forth. We're reintroducing oysters. When you start introducing 20,000, 200,000, 2 million we can scale up these um, processes and then regenerate our seabeds, capture carbon, and then harvest a small amount um, for local fisheries. There's a huge opportunity with wind farms because they stop the trawlers. Ergo, the seabed's protected, so we can restore sea oysters. I'm a big fan of wind farms. There are problems with harbour porpoise populations and potentially seabirds. But the benefits, I think, massively outweigh the risks, and we need to get energy cleanly. I mean, immediately, mussels start growing on the sides of wind farms in huge abundance. Now, they're doing the same jobs as oysters. So immediately, there's an ecosystem benefit from the service. I'm on a project at the moment where we're looking at fish movement around wind farms, and it seems they're more resident in wind farms. So there are real benefits to this we didn't anticipate when we wanted to put these engineering solutions in for climate change. Uh, peatlands have the opposite kind of thing where peatlands are often the sites where wind farms get built but what that means is that you get meters and meters and meters of very ancient material that you're like having to take out like heavy machinery over the peat um, so I think like we should do some kind of like collaboration and try and get those wind farms That's into the sea <laughs> is, that, is that presumably because it's soft ground and you can pile down cheaply that's just like wasteland for them it's still kind of so low on the on the value level kelly when we were talking about uh, oysters there you were nodding furiously but i also wanted to ask you about where have we got to how much has been done already i think in terms of rewilding it's fundamental whether it's in the sea or it's on the land um nature is going to give us the right opportunity to put right what we've, we've done wrong the more that we can um, protect biodiversity enhance it the better chances we'll have in terms of addressing the climate impacts and, and that means that it's that education around the peatlands. You know, I didn't know a lot about it previously, but then obviously you read things and you think, wow, this is fundamentally important to help in terms of fighting climate change and storing carbon. The other thing is as well is every single person can have an impact in rewilding. You might have gardens, you might have window pots, you can bring wildflower planting in, so you're going to enhance biodiversity, and that will create nature corridors across your own areas that you live. And that will fundamentally make a difference in addition to all the other work that we're trying to do. Cleaner water, fresher air to breathe, 
and also it really helps improve mental health. It encourages you to go out more, it encourages you to walk more, and it encourages you to be more with nature. So this doesn't just help the climate, it helps health and well-being as well. Time for a question from a member of the audience who wanted to know what incentives are there for landowners to rewild. You should really read Real Wilding by Isabella Tree because she earns more from rewilding her estate than from traditional farming. Read it, it's an inspiration. And the marine environment, we can actually do seagrass regeneration projects without talking to a landowner, because it's the Crown Estate. We can do regeneration of oysters, as long as it's not a private fishery, and they're rare. And we can do salt marsh creation, because local authorities are telling people who've got problems with flood risk that actually, if you have salt marsh, it buffers the waves. So there are solutions at sea, and financial solutions from rewilding projects with brilliant imaginative people like Isabella Tree. There is something coming called the Environmental Land Management Scheme, the ELM scheme, which will incentivise farmers for setback land and leaving their margins and stuff. So where previously the DEFRA money would have incentivised farmers to do stuff, there is something else coming to replace that, to be more nature-friendly. There are a combination of quick fixes that we can all do that smaller landowners can do through, obviously, the advice through the rewilding network, the sea wild and the marine wild, and people like us just taking action with the businesses, you know, connecting all of the business parks up by just having small rewilded areas. Very quickly, you find these dots on the map. You'll see the connectivity. You'll be able to join the dots, we hope, you know, by all these projects. So that's where I think the inspiration's coming from, that, you know, where you can do something take control and do something. I just think, picking up on what Sharon said as well, it's about that education and raising awareness. So if you are having a business that's looking at energy use and they're trying to rationalise that and bring that down and look at maybe it's bringing in solar PV battery storage, that'll help them move to more of a sustainable energy source. That's focused on the inside of the business, but the businesses have got land outside and it's about how we can encourage them to use that land in a positive way. So don't put hard landscape down so when it does start coming down with heavy deluges you've got less likelihood of flooding but if you've got um, soft landscape with plants you've got wildlife it's more welcoming it's got a better environmental feel and it's also positive to, to mental health and well-being schools can play a fundamental role in this they have large areas of land as well and it's really good for the children to get involved they start getting that education naturally when they're very young and they'll take that behaviour right through into adulthood. And our final question came from a member of the audience who wondered whether the new government peat strategy was any good. Frankie Turk. The UK government is going in the peat direction, so they are getting a bit better. They've also got this thing called the peatland code. Yeah, you can get carbon credits from regenerating your peatlands because they're not emitting carbon. I feel like... It's really important to bring to these kind of conversations the flip side of it. We need regeneration, rewilding and carbon sequestration, but we also need to focus on like stopping fossil fuels right now. Quite often it gets like distracted, like, oh yeah, yeah, we're doing all this stuff over here. But it's like, no, the main issue is like, as long as we have fossil fuels, then like all of this is just like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, we're all, we all need reminded of that. Um, we really appreciate it. Thank you to our speakers. Thank you to Jean-Luc, to Kelly, to Sharon. And I think especially to Frankie for her first outing. Come on, come on. Thanks for listening and thanks to our contributors, Jean-Luc, Kelly, Sharon and Frankie. To find out more about the festival, visit festivalofthrift.co.uk. To the festival.
Music for this episode was the Festival of Thrift Anthem by Mouthful and the Phoenix Voices Choir. The Talks programme and this podcast was curated, produced and presented by me, Simon Preston. Innovation. No, you don't want to miss. Goodbye. The Festival of Thrift.